Good morning. It's good to be with you. Um, I'm Scott Jose of uh, Stefan said from Calvin Seminary, and greetings from the seminary from our president, uh, Jewel Maidenblick, as well. We appreciate your prayers for our ministry there. Uh, always good to be invited back uh, to Elger and to lead you in God's Word this morning, where we're going to turn to Paul's letter to the Colossians and the opening words of its first chapter, the first 14 verses. <clears throat> Please pray with me. Your Word, O God, is alive, and we know that because each time we read your Word, we encounter a living voice, yours. We pray that will be so now, too, and we pray it through Jesus, the Word made flesh. Amen. Here then these words from Colossians chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you because we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all God's people, the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who was a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. And for this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom an understanding that the Spirit gives, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please Him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience, and giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of His holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, in the classic film, The Sound of Music, a nun named Maria is dispatched from the convent to become the governess of the seven children of a certain Captain Von Trapp. Unbeknownst to Maria, however, is the fact that the children had been notoriously hard on their past governesses, having become quite expert at pranks and tricks designed to drive the governess to distraction, if not clean out the door. In the case of Maria, the first thing the children manage is to sneak a live toad into her coat pocket, the discovery of which will soon terrify Maria quite thoroughly. But as some of us recall, uh, that evening at Maria's first dinner with the family, she begins by thanking the children. 
She thanks them for the, the precious gift they gave her earlier. Knowing how nervous I was, I want to thank you for your kindness in making my first moments here so warm and pleasant. And soon enough, the children get the subtext of Maria's words and begin to weep in shame. Captain Von Trapp, of course, has no idea why Maria's words have evoked this kind of reaction, but clearly he senses uh, something's up. Well, seen the right way, I think the Apostle Paul is up to something a little similar here in Colossians 1. As the preacher Tom Long once pointed out in a sermon on Paul's opening words to the Corinthians, Paul often used the first part of his letter subtly to signal, to kind of preview what was coming up in the rest of the letter. In 1 Corinthians, Paul gives thanks for the very things that he full knows well that are the most burning issues of contention in Corinth. Paul praised them for their knowledge, even though he knew many were taking on superior airs about having superior knowledge. He thanked God that they were lacking in no spiritual gift, even though Paul knew that arguments over gifts were tearing the congregation apart. Paul, Tom Long suggested, Paul had his tongue planted firmly in cheek as he praised the Corinthians for the very problems plaguing them the most. And similarly, I think, here in Colossians 1. Paul gives thanks for their faith and for how well they'd managed to understand God's grace. They were bearing fruit, and well, everything just sounds wonderful. In fact, Paul says, that's the reason we never stop praying for you. Every day we ask God to fill you with knowledge and wisdom and understanding. We want you to bear every good fruit, and well, just to say it again, we pray you will grow in knowledge. Like the children at the Von Trapp dinner table, so also the Colossians who had ears to hear the subtext of Paul's words here probably started looking down at their feet. Oh, they got it. Well, Paul was thankful for them all right, but... Well, they were lacking some serious knowledge and wisdom and understanding, and so Paul and others cannot pray long enough or often enough for things to change with these people. God rescued you from the dominion of darkness, Paul writes. But the discerning in Colossa heard even in those words a warning to stop dipping back into the darkness. Because in the balance of this letter, Paul is going to call them to leave behind all false religion and any ideas that suggest something or someone might be superior to Jesus. And the rest of this letter of Colossians becomes pretty clear that Paul is addressing a problem that he had heard was affecting the Colossian church and how they viewed Jesus and their very salvation. In summary, it looks as though the Colossians had become, they had become convinced that although Jesus Christ was a great starting point for the faith, Jesus was not enough. There had to be something more. 
As Fuller Seminary professor Mary Ann May Thompson writes in her commentary on Colossians, the Colossians believed there had to be some gimmick, some secret, some formula out there that helped a person move beyond Christ alone and into realms of ecstasy and, and spine-tingling experiences. Maybe it was achieving visions of angels. Maybe enlightenment came through rigorous ascetic practices that curried favor with various divine beings that would lead to, well, that would lead to something more than you might get in the average Christian worship service. I mean, singing songs is nice, and breaking the bread, and pouring the wine of Holy Communion is fine, but hey, when do we get to the good stuff? For Paul, however, those seeking a souped-up faith and worship experience were not only missing how all the fullness of God dwells in Christ Jesus, they were at the very same time cheapening the person and work of that same Jesus. The moment Jesus stops being enough, the gospel withers. The moment we seek our true identity, our true purpose, our deepest longings outside of the word preached and the worship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, then the more we inch back closer to that dominion of darkness and of bad news that says God has not done enough to save us. Instead, it's up to us to find a higher calling and and more vivid experiences. Now, in a sense, when we look at the church today, we might be tempted to think that the so-called Colossian problem is no longer present. We don't hear much about people today seeking visions of angels. We, We don't bump into folks in your average congregation advocating for ascetic practices or food restrictions or the observance of religious holidays that aren't already part of the usual Christian church year. Perhaps then the Colossian problem is just an historical curiosity of this epistle, but not a burning issue right now. Then again, the witness of a lot of pastors and others in the church in recent years might give us pause to wonder whether the Colossian problem is an oddment of history or something that persists right now as well. Last summer, I I, I crisscrossed the country to convene listening groups, listening sessions with with groups of pastors from a wide variety of church traditions. I wanted to understand the preaching and worship environment that has taken hold after three years of COVID and after ten or more years of fierce partisan divides and disputes. Now, the pastors had a lot of interesting observations. But of particular note was what preachers shared about how the pandemic had changed preaching and worship as churches have entered a a new era of hybrid worship, with many people now tuning into services online, listening to sermons online. Some people do it every week now. It's all some people now do. Others dip in and dip out. But preachers are conscious of the fact that their sermons now are often consumed on YouTube and the like. The result? Increased pressure to jazz things up. 
increased awareness that as even people watch your sermon on YouTube, along the right side of the screen, there are little video thumbnails of lots of other preachers or of other programs altogether luring people to change the channel. Preachers fear that if they can't compete, uh, people will fast forward through the slow parts of their sermons. In fact, the mere fact that worshipers and those who listen to sermons are now often referred to as viewers, that alone is quite telling, isn't it? It's telling of the changes that have come to many churches. So is the church today really that different from Colossa after all? Do we still have people hankering for something more, something flashier, something more souped up than what the average worship service and sermon may have to offer? Is Christ alone enough? Or do we want more? And in a somewhat related vein, we could ask this question. Is our unity in Christ alone enough? Or do we need to go beyond that in some congregations now to have also a partisan unity? What long-term damage to a focus on Christ alone was done by horrible divisions over pandemic-related practices like masking, social distancing, vaccines? Oh, make no mistake. Paul prays for us too. We have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with knowledge and wisdom and understanding from the Spirit. Live a life worthy of the Lord. Let Christ's glorious might give you endurance and patience. Don't lose sight of Christ. Don't be distracted. Don't think there needs to be something more, something better, something higher than Jesus. Because listen, there is nothing more, nothing higher, nothing better than Jesus. The Colossians had become convinced that out somewhere out there in the wider spiritual world, there was some gimmick that can put you in touch with something better than Jesus. Not true, Paul says. Not true. You need to be filled to the measure with the fullness of Christ, not looking for some gimmick. No gimmick, only grace. Grace alone only by the grace with which Paul greeted the Colossians in verse 2 can we both see Christ and be blown away by His supremacy over all things. No gimmick, just the gift of grace. The gift freely given to us by the Spirit of God and sealed to us in our baptisms. That's what brought us out of that dominion of darkness and into the kingdom of light. And Paul could see the light of Christ, even though near as we can tell, he wrote this letter from a prison cell and quite possibly from a time not long before the Romans hauled him out of town one day and lopped off his head. If ever someone were in a circumstance where they could justifiably wish for something more, something better, something higher, well, a person sitting in a prison cell would have to be it. As Barbara Brown Taylor said, for all we know, the only actual light Paul could see as he wrote this was a a thin shaft of sunlight falling on the floor of his cell from some slit of a window high above his head. And yet it was precisely there that Paul wrote these words, 
It was precisely there that Paul wrote also the words that begin coming up starting at verse 15 where Paul will go on a verbal tear of over 270 Greek words strung together with a breathless verb and enthusiasm in a single Greek sentence that is almost unmatched in the whole of Scripture. Jesus, Paul will say in about ten different ways, Jesus is the one who made all things. Jesus is the one for whom all things exist, in whom all things come together, and He is absolutely the head of all things. Paul just keeps hammering home that phrase, all things, all things, all things. It's as though Paul were jumping up and down and saying that Jesus is superior to and He is the Lord and the King over all things, all things, all things. And then he looks back at the Colossians and he says, any questions? Paul was filled with an inexpressible joy because there in that prison cell, Jesus was with him through the Holy Spirit. And it was enough. Mind-blowingly more than enough. Reminds me of the story of Miguel Velez as told to be by my colleague John Rotman who got to know Miguel some years ago. Miguel Velez spent a good bit of his life as a key assassin for the Colombian drug lord Pablo Escobar. Velez admitting to killing more people than he can count. In the 1980s, an American man named Barry Seal worked for the DEA, the Drug Enforcement Agency, but he actually became a double agent, smuggling drugs for the very Medellin drug cartel that the government was paying him to bring to justice. He was playing both ends off against the middle, and so finally the day came when Pablo Escobar regarded Seal too dangerous to let live. And so he dispatched Miguel Velez to Baton Rouge, Louisiana, where Velez brutally gunned down Seal with a machine gun in 1986. But this time Velez got caught, and he was sentenced to life in prison without possibility of parole. And at the Louisiana State Penitentiary at Angola, Velez was such a dangerous and violent prisoner that the warden put him in solitary confinement for 15 years. He still managed to get in trouble at one point, though, and so one day found himself thrown into the hole for an even harsher period of confinement. And, and as his eyes adjusted to the dim light in that narrow room, Velez spied something tucked uh, between a crack in the brick wall high above his head. He, Velez managed to scrape and claw his way up there and retrieve the object, only to find that it was just a copy of the New Testament. And enraged, infuriated that that's all it was, Velez tore the book to, to shreds, scattering scraps of paper all over the floor of his cell. And as he uh, recovered his breath from that exertion, he, he spied a larger piece of paper on the floor, picked it up. It was a Bible verse, of course, from Hebrews 11, verse 1. Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance in what we do not see. And in that moment, Jesus jumped into Miguel Velez's heart, set up shop, and never left. And immediately, immediately, Velez was changed. He became a man of great calm and peace. The warden eventually let him out of solitary. And when Velez discovered he had a talent for art, the warden supplied him with canvases and art, brushes and, and paint. And Velez then spent years painting portrait after portrait, icon after icon of Jesus. It was like Jesus was all he could think about. 
And eventually, just before he died of cancer in 2015, Velez was commissioned by the warden to paint floor-to-ceiling frescoes from the life of Jesus in a newly built church inside Angola prison, including the one you can see here in this picture of Miguel. Miguel Velez found a supreme peace and a fullness he could never have imagined, and it was not because of some gimmick or some secret formula, but by grace alone. Sheer, inexplicable, wonderful, wild grace. And as for the Apostle Paul in prison, so also in Miguel's prison, the light of Christ exploded into his heart, and no one would ever have been able to convince Miguel that he would ever need anything else, anything more, anything better. He had just Jesus, and it was everything. Like the people in the fresco, you can see Velez took his seat at the foot of the cross and gazed and gazed upon the one who fills all in all. Paul prayed for the Colossians, and his prayer rises for also all of us yet today. In a time of so many distractions, of so many temptations to make the church or preaching or worship to be something else, something flashier, in a time when people in our congregations increasingly find it difficult to achieve a greater unity, we need the knowledge and the wisdom and the understanding that comes from the Spirit and that comes only by grace alone. We need Jesus in all His glorious fullness because Jesus is enough. And God brings Jesus to us and us to Jesus by His Holy Spirit. To invoke Paul's favorite prepositional phrase, we now live in Christ, almost as though that's our spiritual zip code. In Christ, Paul writes a little later in Colossians, in Christ all the fullness of God lived in bodily form. And that's what we have now, Christ in us, us in Christ, Christ in the morning, Christ in the evening, Christ who is all and all. Had Paul known of the 20th century songwriter Cole Porter, he might have quoted him approvingly. Who could ask for anything more? Amen. Please pray with me. Lord our God, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for bringing this gospel to us. We are thankful, O oh God, for all the gifts we receive in Jesus and that we receive again now at his table. Bless us, O Lord, as we commune now with your Son and thank you for the gospel that brings him to us, our everything, in all his fullness. Amen.